Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 30 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritschews. We continue our celebration of April as National Poetry Month this week with a special two-part podcast featuring material recorded at last weekend's Spoken Word event in Wheeling. This event was sponsored by Wheeling's Independent Theater Collective and was part of the Ogle Bay Institute's 80th Anniversary Imagination Celebration. I got to be there and play MC for the event, and the evening turned out to be a spectacular one with more than one amazing performance. The unfortunate part, however, is that my audio recording for the event was not an amazing performance. It could have been better, particularly for the first segment. What happened was, I positioned my digital recorder on the floor near an amplifier that I thought was going to be the one that would be active for the show, but that turned out to be an amp brought in by a musician and was only used for his portion later. I realized my mistake after the first segment, but... The first segment doesn't sound as good as I would like it to. I've been able to boost the audio somewhat in the computer, but it's not ideal. So my apologies go out to our first presenter of the show, John E. Riley. He's a recently retired professor of arts and communications at West Liberty University, and he's acted with and directed for several community, academic, and professional theaters in the Wheeling and Pittsburgh areas, as well as Shakespeare companies in Tennessee and Virginia. He'll be reading from Diane Gilliam Fisher's wonderful poetry collection, Kettlebottom. What we have in this, uh, this book of poetry is uh, a portrait of a community, uh, all done in the first person. Uh, she is, uh, her roots are in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. Uh, she's now, I believe, living in the Akron area, but still keeps in contact uh, with uh, her people. Uh, the, the time frame of the poems are, is the Cold Wars of the 1920s, early 1920s, uh, especially in the border area between Kentucky and uh, West Virginia. Um, I guess I always knew something about that before I came to this area in 1980. Uh, I certainly have become very much aware of it uh, since that time. Um, it's an incredible period in American history, not just state history because it was an actual war uh, in, in terms of miners fighting the coal companies um, for a variety of reasons, basic living conditions largely, of uh, having, uh, having their supporters uh, from outside the state, uh, the, the mining companies having their own private armies, uh, most specifically the uh, Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency, and the reference to that among the pubs. Uh, and even the state and federal government being on the side of the mining companies. Um, what we have in the poems is, a, uh, as I said, is a group portrait of men, women, children, a um, variety of different uh, cultural backgrounds, uh, native-born immigrants, black, white, um, even the preacher and the teacher 
uh, who deal with the members of the community, but who are paid by the coal companies. Uh, I've, I've sent the book off to friends in the Midwest, uh, and they've been bowled over by it. Uh, and I, I hope uh, I can stimulate you to check the book out. It's, uh, I think it's a remarkable work. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, three poems, uh, A Man, A Child, uh, and I think a slightly older woman, a uh, woman who is remembering something that happened in her youth. A number of these poems are based on stories that Diane Gilling Fisher has heard. Um, some of them are fictions, but all of them are based upon uh, people that, that she knows. Okay, I'd like to start off with um, uh, a poem from uh, the point of view of one of the miners. Um, it is called uh, The Rocks Down Here. First hour of every shift down in the mine, shakes and cold sweats, worse than the grip that near took me last spring. Past that, I begin to feel easy like, moving through the dark. You can bet your bottom dollar that all the felt gun bugs won't hound a man down into the hole to devil him. Nor can a woman's eyes follow after him, craving to be somewhere else somewhere clean in green leaves and sun, where she don't spend her days wiping coal dust and scraping up to feed youngs. Seven is hard to feed. The rocks down here, they don't expect nobody to love them. And they don't never need shoes or get old big-eyed and hungry looking at a man. After an hour or so down below, Body gets to thinking. A mountain on your back? Hell, that ain't nothing. The next poem is from the point of view of a child, specifically Edith May Chapman, age nine. Uh, she has a, a number of poems in the book. Uh, very opinionated. Uh, uh, I was going to say four or nine year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to come out of my mouth, but no, nine-year-olds have that opinion. Um, there are several of the poems are done uh, in conversation with her diary, and this is the first of the, the, the diary poems. Dear Diary, again, this is Edith May Chapman. My teacher, Miss Terry, has given me this little book for a girl, she says, has got lots of feelings she needs to get out. And maybe she don't want to tell them to the whole world. That is what a diary is for. So I will tell you, dear diary, all my secrets, beginning with Emily Lawson. <laughs> Every few months, church ladies in Cincinnati send us at Winco a mission box. Mostly it's a big lot of nothing can't nobody use. But last time, the women began to praise Jesus and clap, for it was all coats. They lit into the box and began to parcel them out, holding them up by the shoulder to see in what fit who. I just sat quiet, but I see a blue coat in the pile, so pretty, blue and soft looking with a black velvet collar, jet buttons like little barrels, and shiny black loops. I didn't say nothing or it is wrong to covet. But Granny Chapman, she seen me looking at, and she said to Mama, 
Well, I do believe that little blue coat looks made for Edith May. I know Mama might frown, for she don't believe in taking the finest things. The first, she says, shall be last. Granny Chapman looked at her hard, though, till Mama smiled and said, Why, yes, come on and let us see. All the neighbor women said, Ain't she pretty? And look at them blue eyes till I felt like a queen. When, when me and Mama went on home, and Daddy seen me in my coat, he commenced to stomping around where he is hateful of the admission boxes. But Mama caught his eye and shook her head, no, and he just shook his head, well, and grunted some, <laughs> and sat back down and looked at me. <laughs> Edith May, he said finally, you are the apple of my eye. I went over and come up on his lap, which I have not done for a long time, as I am nine, <laughs> and hugged his neck and told him, Daddy, you are the huckleberry of my heart. Later, when Mama and Papa was abed, I will tell you, dear diary, I snuck the coat off of the bed to sleep in. It crackled under my back from a letter I found stuck up under the light, which says this. Dear Mountain Girl, my mother has told me how, in the coal camps of West Virginia, there are girls who do not have dancing lessons or a new coat every year or the benefit of scripture, or even supper every day. Mother says, I must remember that the last shall be first. So, I have kept last year's coat and sent you the new blue coat Grandmother Lawson sent me from Boston. I hope it will keep you warm and make you feel not so poor. Very truly yours, Emily Lawson. I don't mean ever to tell, for it is good when Daddy don't stop. And Mama smiles and says, Edith May, you plenty warm in that pretty coat? And I say, yes, Mama, warm as pie, which is true and not a lie, for it is only my heart that is cold. The last poem I'm going to do is one that uh, Diane Gilligan Fisher always includes in her readings, and she usually does it late in the reading. It is based on uh, a story that she herself was told, um, based on actual fact. The um, title of the poem is Milk. Mama always said, you can't be the baby if there's no happiness in the milk. Now, we didn't judge a man by what he had, but by whether he took his pay home before he went to the barn. And Burns Cantrell did not. And he hit Marion, which wasn't a fault of hers, Mom said. So, when she had a baby come in strike time, Mama bought two tins of canned milk out of the dollar a week the company store allowed each family for food and sent me to set them on Cantrell's porch every Monday, after Burns went up the hill. Now, it was a law among the miners that, come a roof fall, you roam. Everybody know that was how it was. If you stop to look back to see who's dead or trapped, you only make more dead. 
Four days after the men went back in, there come a bad root fall. Killed 16. Dad was back behind. Right off the rocks broke one backbone and his jaw in five places. Burns Cantrell was up front. He heard them rocks begin to fall. And he run back into the hole, pitch back. The mountain crumbled like the end of the world and carried Daddy out. He knows he owed Mama for the milk. Mr. Riley ended his reading by pointing out that Kettlebottom author Diane Gillian Fisher always gives credit for the story to the woman who first told it to her, Leona Mello, whose mother, Marie Ash, was the woman in the poem who gave the milk. Our second and final poet of this podcast is Wheeling Poet, Duncan Kinder. Um, my first poem of the uh, night is uh, a result from an encounter I had actually from a fellow I go to church with. Um, uh, I happen, uh, it's, it's, it's about, I happen to go about uh, town with a bumper sticker that in relevant part states, Patriarch sucks. Patriarch, as many of you may know, is the Italian poet who uh, pretty much founded Italian humanism and established the sun as a poetic art form. And this fellow uh, served me with a, uh, a sonnet, a uh, Petrarchan sonnet, which called for the response, which I gave to him. I found your sonnet to be taxing, for I prefer the Anglo-Saxon. Though some may think it quite a lark to take a spin with old Petrarch, but that's not how I talk. Though some may find it very nice to measure words, thereby to spice, and to some precious verbal quince, a dainty potion for some prince. But is that how they talk? It might be fine in old Italian to marshal words in some battalion, to parade with words as smooth as sack and handy dandy, dandy Latin. Perhaps that's how they talked. But let me show you what I mean. Giuseppe Verdi translates Joe Green. Our poems, sir, are out to lunch, unless they smack a certain punch, for that is how we talk. From Beowulf to Mother Goose, our words are tart, our manners loose. To mince with words, that's far too pallid. Instead, let's have a border ballad, for that's how we should talk. Um, The second, I am uh, engaged in a, uh, a project where I'm uh, trying to render Sir Thomas Mallory's uh, King Arthur into uh, a letter to verse. Uh, that's uh, for background how old uh, poetry used to be really in the Middle Ages. And actually another uh, King Arthur poem, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, was done in a letter to verse. So this is sort of a takeoff on that. Uh, the, I have some excerpts from that. The first uh, goes to how uh, uh, Arthur came to be sired. The Rape of a Duchess. Unable to earn her, Luther contrived a plethorous passion to appear as her husband. To be masked by Merlin, magic transformed him. Disguised as the duke, he dared speak to her fortress. Tintagel Tower, 
became accompanied by two counterfeit men. Merlin, he marshaled the mix in this plot, while Ufius undertook to enter the fray. Neither was normal, like the dukes nor knights they appeared. Her guards gathered round him to greet their lord. For they admired that duke who lay dead in the field. The fake duke dismissed him, undrained by the weather. For the wizard had warned him to ward off all greetings, nor discuss with the duchess his doings and cares, lest he alert them of his illicit intent. Not unmasked that man who now mimicked their master. He silently inserted himself in her chamber. At the bed he beheld the bride of his dreams. She admitted this man, the magic deceiver, and conceived the son who Sunday would hold. My second version is the search for the sword. This is the famous episode where he draws the sword out of the stone. To join the joust journeyed Sir Hector, accompanied by Kay, who, as custom decreed, had been duly dubbed knight the day before, and also came Arthur, who was only his reward. Though keen for the contest, Kay left his sword, so he ordered Arthur, Arthur, who was under his ward, to hide at their house to call it back. When he arrived at the room, ringing the bell, the lady had left. She'd been lured by the joust, so he secured no sword for Sir Kay to use. But there's a sword in the stone, he said to himself. I'll go to that graveyard and get it instead. No blade for my brother would be bitter for me. Coming to the church dial, he chained his horse. Its guards were all gone for a glimpse of the joust. Seizing the sword, swiftly yanked right from that rock, ripping it out. Regaining his gallant, he galloped at Chouquet and handed over the hilt that held his own fortune. Its status was certain, no secret for Kay. He sought out Sir Hector to show it to him. Kay then claimed that the kingmaker was his. This unsettled Sir Hector, who sought out the yard, and the brothers abrayed him when he told when he did that they followed. Kay, I command you to confess to the Lord what caused the kingmaker to come to your hand. The blades of my brother, he brought it to me. Answer me, Arthur, with oath that is true, how the sword and the stone that so many want you once owned till offered decay. I swear to you, sir, my story is this. When I came to the closet where Kay had put it, the lady had left and could unlock the door. Should Kay go swordless? Certainly not. So I headed over here and hauled out the blade. Were there knights nearby? Did you notice the guards? None that I know of, no one was there. From the sense of your story, I say you are king. Thank you very much. Join us for part two of our recorded live reading with a powerful Mark Twain poem read by Independent Theater Collective President Jeremy Richter and a moving poem by a young poet named Creighton Hill. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was assembled atop a hill in Mercer County.